Thank you for joining us for this special episode, the first episode of the third season of the Cefi podcast, which coincides with Cefi 2023 at TU Dublin and to help celebrate 50 years of Cefi. What can we learn from the transformation of a technical university from a local to global player in engineering education? In this episode, we'll discuss this with Professor Emeritus Mike Murphy from TU Dublin in Ireland. Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by CEFI, the European Society for Engineering Education. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. I'm Neil Cook. I'm Natalie Went. So, Neil, I think um, I still see myself as one of these young, sort of naive academics who's come into engineering education and I see all these things I want changed, um, like in the curriculum, the culture, the structure, lots of things. Mm. Um, and I also recognise that I'm quite impatient and sometimes I lack sort of long-term future vision and strategic thinking. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm really interested to hear about how Mike has sort of managed change in such a sort of complex system. What about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's been some big changes in higher education uh, since the turn of the century. And I think from a European perspective, you know, Ireland's changed immensely. Mm. And some have said it's emblematic of sort of this globalised vision of engineering education um, because it's changed the most. Mm -hmm. So I think the work that Mike's done with his colleagues at TU Dublin will give us all some real valuable insights about the changes all universities are making. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Delighted to be here. So Professor Emeritus Mike Murphy was president of CEFI from 2017 to 2019. He has over 20 years experience in a variety of senior management roles at TU Dublin in Ireland um, after working in telecommunications for Bell Labs Research AT&T in the USA. He holds several engineering degrees from Stevens Institute Dublin Institute of Technology and Trinity College. He was Programme Coordinator for the initiative that led to the successful establishment of TU Dublin, Ireland's first designated technological university. His management roles include Faculty Director of Engineering and Director and Dean of the College of Engineering. In 2022, he was appointed Interim National Coordinator for the EU-funded €40 million Euro national initiative to transform teaching and learning across the technological university sector in Ireland. So, Mike, you transitioned from industry to academia. Can you share with us how this transition came about and what sort of motivated you to join the academic world? Uh, yeah, uh, so I suppose I probably need to start that question back when I went, I did my undergraduate at what became Dublin Institute of Technology. I did that in Dublin and mm -hmm. then had the opportunity to go to the United States to study for a master's degree. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Uh, I was at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. And after my master's, stayed for a PhD. But after I finished the PhD, uh, I was offered assistant professorship at Stevens and I was delighted to take that. But a, a, about a year later, realized that, in fact, that academic life wasn't for me. Uh, so I went out into industry in telecoms. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always stayed connected to Stevens. And I was adjunct professor through the 1990s. So when I came back to Ireland on, a, on a, an industry project, uh, I had had this kind of continual relationship with the academy, uh, with, in fact, being an adjunct uh, faculty member. So I left the company I was with, Belcor, and a very short time later, the role of Dean of Engineering in DIT was advertised. And when I took a, a kind of a careful look at the specification for what they were looking for, it seemed to me that I provided a really good balance of, uh, of academic and industry Irish plus international uh, mm. and high-tech experience. So I thought I was a good match, but I wasn't really sure whether I belonged as an academic or, you know, whether I would be a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. But I applied for the role and ended up in the role of Dean. And 
I quickly learned whether, in fact, I was that fish out of water or not. So, Mike, you've recently retired from TU Dublin, which is a new university formed in 2019 with the merger of three institutes of technology, the largest of which was um, Dublin Institute of Technology, which itself enjoys a long history dating back 130 years. The TUD has about 30,000 students, 3,500 staff. Can you tell us more about TUD and the technological university sector in Ireland? Yes. Um, so the, the, as you kind of hint at, the technological university sector is in fact uh, the result of uh, a strategic plan for higher education at policy or government level within Ireland. Up to the establishment of TU Dublin in January 2019, there were no technological universities. There were seven universities, and they were essentially mirrored by 14 institutes of technology with a very, very careful delineation of who could call themselves a university and then those who were not. And Dublin Institute of Technology always straddled that boundary um, because we had many attributes of a university. But at the same time, we had real characteristics of the Institute of Technology sector. We had sub-degree programs, if you like, or or higher certificates. We had apprentice students, we still do. Um, And uh, we had three-year programs as well as four-year programs. But our research output would have been lower than what was expected of a university. So the government uh, decided that there was an opportunity to transform the sector And so it uh, proposed the establishment of uh, technical universities or technological universities, to be exact. Um, So one of the really brilliant ideas from a government perspective was they wanted consolidation in higher education. So they made it a condition of applying to become a technological university that you had to merge with at least one other institute of technology. So in Dublin, there were a total of four institutes of technology, and we merged with two of the other three, um, Blanchardstown Institute of Technology and Institute of Technology Tala. Mm. And so on the 1st of January 2019, those three institutes were dissolved and TU Dublin came into existence. And subsequently, I should say, uh, we now have uh, four other uh, technological universities in Ireland, and there are only two remaining uh, institutes of technology in Ireland. So the sector has been transformed, and it has been a success story. And this has all happened in the last five to 10 years? Five years, five years, yes. Interestingly, Neil, In 1997, Dublin Institute of Technology, DIT, applied to become a university under previous legislation. And the report on that application said that we were almost ready to be a university, but perhaps in another five years, we might be ready. So 1997 to 2019. So it took basically 20 years. And the government has very has been very good. It has recognized that funding, structural funding, needs to go to support the, the embedding and the, the firm establishment of the technological universities. And in fairness to them, most of them have also looked at the opportunity to transform what they were doing in terms of uh, a greater focus on their regional remits, as well as a greater focus on trying to put the three legs under the stool of excellent teaching, applied research, and great engagement with industry and the local community. Okay, so you talked about um, uh, this massive transformation um, in the sector in Ireland, and and clearly TU Dublin has um, gained a real international profile. And and in this episode, Mike, we're going to focus on this transformation in engineering education from serving kind of the local needs to becoming this global force. So before we start with your journey on this, what in your view uh, are the key ingredients for a successful transformation? Um, So I would love to be able to say 
to you that I was uh, a real student of change and change management and the <laughs> likes of Cotter's Eight yes. Steps for Successful Change. <laughs> yes. But no, I wasn't. Uh, that right. Any of the knowledge I have uh, in terms of how change has been studied generally came after the fact. Um, yeah, Live, learn by doing. Yeah, learn by doing and make, <laughs> make lots of mistakes uh, yeah. in doing as well. Um, but I was I was recruited directly in as uh, a director of the Faculty of Engineering, essentially an executive dean. Mm. Um, and the president of DIT at the time in hiring me in as an industry hire was basically recognizing that some of the changes that he wanted to see within the Faculty of Engineering really couldn't be initiated and driven internally, that it just wasn't happening internally. So mm. he wanted an outside stimulus. Uh, so one of the uh, one of the things I would say with respect to change is you need to know why you're trying to change. You know, or my favorite question of all is what problem are we trying to solve? And so if there is a consensus in terms of what we're trying to do, then that needs to be uh, it does need to be set as a vision. There's no question. And one of the things I think that I would say I probably was not as good at initially was yeah. continuing to sell the vision, particularly right. to the people that don't buy the vision. They they don't want to change. They're no. comfortable with where they are. So you didn't necessarily follow these change management models, but, but you've instinctively followed um, some of those uh, steps. Yeah, the, the, you create the burning platform, uh, yeah. as, as it is said. Yes, I, I can remember one meeting um, that I had with my faculty executive, and my faculty executive would have been five heads of school. Mm. And I had come back from a CEFI conference, and this would have been in the early 2000s, you know, right. maybe 2004 or something. Yeah. And I was trying to convince the heads of school of the need for curriculum and pedagogical change. Mm. And I had this... I had this light bulb moment. I looked around the room and I looked at myself, if you like, and I said, you know, the, the problem here is that we're a bunch of middle-aged white men who've been educated <laughs> in engineering in the 1970s. Yeah. And that's not where we are right now. We're right. in the new century. And so what do we not know about how engineers should be educated and the skills our faculty, our teaching staff need to have in order mm. to be successful in that. And that was a, a light bulb moment for me, that realization. And that also meant that anybody, anytime I had the opportunity to try and bring somebody in to recruit a new teacher, academic, lecturer, mm. or some other support post, yeah. uh, I would try to bring somebody in from the outside uh, in order to just open us up to uh, a wider perspective on what we could be doing. So Mike, you mentioned um, about bringing in like different perspectives, but what did you see as the sort of strengths where you currently were and maybe the, like the challenges you faced as, as well? Like where were you at? So the, the key strength and acknowledged uh, externally was that uh, we were an excellent teaching institution. We were essentially a professionally oriented um, faculty of engineering. Mm -hmm. So we were practice focused and uh, our lecturers as a consequence were excellent. There was a degree of complacency uh, in a number of programs, this sense that because people are telling us our teaching is excellent, then it must be, and we don't have to do anything to change. Mm -hmm. um, but the other excellent dynamic I saw in DIT was care for students, which tended sometimes to be almost like a, uh, you know, as one head of school said to me, you know, we have to mother our students, otherwise they won't learn. In other words, this sense of trying to make them eat their, their vegetables as opposed <laughs> to letting them eat their vegetables, if that makes any sense. And, uh, I think also our our reach out to and connection with industry and the professions in particular, and to some extent with the community, but not as strong in terms of community engagement, but industry and professional engagement, very strong. Um, the 
The flip side of that was, of course, uh, one of our key limitations was a weakness in our postgrad, our top postgrad activity, and uh, certainly a weakness in our research MPhil and PhD activity. So th- th- there were a couple of, uh, and, s- and still remain, a couple of structural issues. In Ireland, uh, academics are recruited on standardized scales and in what was the Institute of Technology sector and still is in the technological university sector, there is a fairly onerous uh, contract that academics need to work to in which they are expected to have 16 for a lecturer and 18 for an assistant lecturer uh, contact hours with students each Mm -hmm. year. That's pretty much full on contact with students that's expected. And it's very, very difficult to actually convince academics uh, that you're looking for research output on top of that. Mm. Um, but, you know, our I have to say, I take my hat off to so many of the academics. And uh, especially when I came on and I started to beat the drum for greater research output, um, so many people that we hired, so many people that were already there. Uh, took up, uh, responded to that drumbeat and got engaged um, in ways that they knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I if I could actually sow, sow a thought here as well, as we started to try and increase our research output, we because we had so many great teachers, um, they were able to start looking at, you know, what were they doing that made them their teaching effective? What could they do better? Mm-hmm. And so we started to get some of our existing faculty starting to go to conferences to look at how others were doing it and starting to release conference papers on that activity. And, and that was kind of like an awakening that was serendipitous because they probably weren't strong enough to do disciplinary based research but they could talk about how they were teaching it. So, Mike, you talked about uh, broadening this perspective of uh, bringing new people into DIT. And, um, you know, you came into DIT as this industry hire and then developed yourself as an academic and began to sort of foster a culture of um, a sort of DIT reaching out through conferences and so on. So could you give us a bit more sort of information on on how you led that type of change? Again, the, the question gets me to reflect on uh on the, the path. And you're you're right. Uh when I came in as Dean of Engineering in 2002, for me, part of what I needed to do was to validate myself as an academic. Mm. Um so I started attending CEFI and ASEE conferences, uh, partly to to understand more what it meant to be uh, either an engineering faculty member or an engineering student in the new century. Mm. Um, And so I found myself attending all the sessions. I was trying to listen to new initiatives and what people were, were discovering through their research and I was coming back and probably driving my heads of school kind of crazy in terms of, you know, should we be looking at PBL and, mm. you know, what about active learning and, you know, yeah. really trying to bring ideas back that were, if you like, point ideas based mm. on what I was hearing. But what I also was realizing was that, you know, that probably is not the most effective way the dean's office should be operating. And that <laughs> what I really needed was to leverage, if you like, the, the strength of the faculty. So what I started trying to do was to get our heads of school to travel out and more importantly, to get our faculty traveling out. Yeah. And so we slowly uh, started to see more of our people engaging in uh, principally the Cephi community. Um, mm. And uh, I, I really think uh, when I look back on 20 years, I, I think that's one of the, the neatest things for me to see. It's uh, it, not so much that, for example, TU Dublin is now hosting the Cephi 2023 annual conference, mm. but it's to see the number of people from TU Dublin 
that are engaged uh, across Cephi. Um, so that trying to evolve from being kind of an inward focused insular institution into an open, comfortable and confident uh, technological university engaged in so many ways, uh, I think has been, uh, it, it's been remarkable. And it's it's one of the things that I, I, I am really proud of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I started that question talking about your personal transformation, but it, it appears to me that you were responsible for personal transformations of, of lots of people. Could you uh, perhaps describe how how these people changed? Um, so l- let me perhaps to to begin an answer to that, give you an example. Um, on one of my, I, I think it was a an academic uh, research trip to MIT, Um, I met Larry Bucchiarelli, um, uh, Professor Emeritus at MIT and a leading uh, design engineer and uh, and researcher in EER uh, person. And uh, I invited Larry to spend a semester at DIT and he accepted. So this probably would have been around about 2007. So Larry came in with all of the credentials, respect, experience uh, from a career in MIT. And he spent uh, a semester poking around, getting to know our folks and looking at the programs, how we taught, what we taught, et cetera. And his report, uh, if you like, and I say report because it wasn't a formal report, but his engagement and, and what he said to so many of our teaching-focused faculty uh, gave them the sense that what they were doing was, if you like, at a, a level not that different than what was going on at, at an undergraduate teaching level, was not that different than what was going on at MIT. Wow. And I believe that there was this subtle shift Mm. that people started to realize that there was external validation of what they were doing. And I followed up uh, from that visit by Larry Bucciarelli by starting to have annual Fulbright scholars visit us. And it was really successful. Cheryl Sorby, uh, who was hugely influential, still engaged with CEFI and with uh, TU Dublin, came she became uh president of ASEE uh Stephanie Farrell came uh and later became president of ASEE and these were people who themselves were serious researchers in um in how engineering students learn how people learn uh, and how we should educate them better and their constant present acted as an agent uh acted as essentially Below my office, I mean, this was that because of what they were doing on a day-to-day basis, engaging with faculty, you know, getting people to, you know, deciding to write papers with them, etc. It yeah. uh, it really, uh, I think, was a stimulating environment and was the start of our transformation into focusing, or not so much focusing, but developing our EER capabilities. So, Mike, you touched upon some of the sort of significant achievements during this time. Would you be able to speak more about some of the like key milestones during this transformational period? Um, so one of the things when you say key milestones, Natalie, I go back to the fact that I did not have my Cotter eight-stage plan. Um, <laughs> that there, but, but one of the things that um, I did from early on when I arrived there, there was no strategic plan within the Faculty of Engineering. In fact, I don't think DIT even had a strategic plan back in 2002. So a detailed strategic plan, uh, I thought, was probably not valuable. But what we instead agreed were five or six strategic milestones. Um, and we put some objectives against those milestones, had it on a one-page chart, and uh, tried to work to that each year um so uh so that was one but then how did we achieve them um one of the one of the things i did 
which turned out to be really a, a very, very successful initiative was uh, there, there had been a proposal across DIT for a post of head of learning development on a faculty basis. And uh, I decided I was going to go with that and and internally appointed a head of learning development. And that person was responsible for quality assurance of programs. So that gave me now greater visibility in terms of what was actually happening inside our engineering programs. But also they had a learning development role. And that meant that they had a remit to try and improve the way our faculty actually engaged in their teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the years, that has become a very, very successful role, not just within the faculty, but also across the university. And uh, people, for example, uh, like Brian Bow came into that role uh, and um, Brian kicked on in terms of our our ability to conduct engineering education research as as his um, academic uh, strength. But also uh, there was rigor in terms of our quality assurance. So that was the appointment of a head of learning development was really successful. I then appointed a head of research. Uh, Again, the goal there was to help researchers develop, but also to help uh, researchers understand what grants they might apply for, uh, better ways to write those grant proposals, Mm -hmm. who they might collaborate with. So head of research, head of learning and development. I talked about Fulbright scholars bringing in those outside change agents. They never knew they were outside change agents, but that's what they were. And they were really successful at it. Recruitment. Uh, I would say this to anyone. um, Every time you're in a position to recruit somebody new, focus on that very, very carefully. Think very hard about the type of person you want the cultural attributes you're trying to bring in, uh, the activities you're looking to stimulate and recruit appropriately. Do not, do not simply recruit somebody who is like the person who's just retired. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then in terms of EER, which is, again, from a Cephi perspective, I think one of our, our success stories, um, as we began to develop a a, a larger community of people involved in engineering education research. Uh, We formed what we called CREATE, um, the Center for the Research. Now the the acronyms have changed uh, uh, in terms of, uh, originally it was architecture, I think it's applied technology now, Uh, but CREATE was our mechanism to bring people together on a regular basis. Uh, and to try and focus some of our research uh, outputs in the EER space. Again, Brian Bow, uh, uh, key key person in that originally, but the likes of Una Began uh, and others uh, have been really dynamic change agents in there as well. So those would be some of the achievements that that I would point to that have led to uh, greater engagement and involvement with organizations like CEFI and the CEFI, the CEFI member universities. So, um, Mike, a lot of these sort of changes you were speaking about are very internal, but I was just wondering how sort of external factors such as policy, um, accreditation, those types of things were influencing how you felt you had to change. Yes. Uh, so, Natalie, w- one of the one of the things is that, uh, you know, at a dean level, um, you can't you can't ignore the external forces that are shaping uh, what you're doing or what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, these external forces were positive and uh, influential. So let's take accreditation. Um, mm-hmm. In Ireland, engineering accreditation is overseen by Engineers Ireland or the professional body. Uh, that uh, accredits uh, uh, engineering and awards the title of chartered engineer. In fact, uh, Engineers Ireland has uh, uh, one of the CEFI board members is um, the director general of uh, Engineers Ireland. 
Engineers Ireland has been really positive in evolving its accreditation criteria for engineering programs uh, at the two-year program, the three-year program, four-year program, and in fact, with, uh, with uh, master's programs as well. So each time, uh, not each time, but they would have their criteria, which they would update on a regular basis. And internally, then we needed to respond and through accreditation uh, visits, uh, demonstrate that we were meeting those criteria. And that is a really good way for, you know, our programs and our program leaders to show that they're continuing to evolve their programs to meet the accreditation criteria. Uh, Engineers Ireland has gotten better at that. And across, not just in TU Dublin, but across Ireland, uh, there are really, I, I think for the most part, programs are excellent in engineering as a consequence of the diligent work that Engineers Ireland has done. So a, a real force for for change and good uh, from mm-hmm. an external perspective. But in addition, um, the government through different in, incentives um, also looked to try and encourage uh, change in teaching and learning. Uh, they, they founded a national center for the enhancement of teaching and learning uh, who did uh, uh, studies and uh, uh, proposed position papers on what could be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government put out funding such as strategic investment fund for, for universities to, to change. So there has been, a, I think, a consistent, but but not necessarily a straitjacketed uh, approach to trying to incentivize and encourage change within higher education. And then uh, we would take that and focus it on change within engineering education within uh, initially DIT and then TU Dublin. Mm -hmm. So those external forces were always there and uh, I think really were quite helpful. Sometimes sometimes the wheels of the cart can get stuck in the mud. And what you've got to do is just get them moving again. And if you can get the move, then you can keep the momentum going. So, Mike, we talk about some of these external drivers for change, and um, we know Ireland has transformed to this knowledge-based economy with some of the biggest technology companies in the world headquartered in Dublin, you know, the Googles and the Microsofts, um, which give more options for your graduates. Um, So what was their influence on TUD and the changes that you were involved in? At one level, the influx of high-tech companies into Dublin was a response to the government's initiative to continue to nurture and develop uh, uh, a high skills or a knowledge-based economy. Uh, Now, that said, um, at one point about a dozen years ago, uh, DIT gave an honorary doctorate to, um, to the global CEO of Intel, uh, and I was at that dinner, and uh, the minister for uh, industry at the time asked uh, Craig Barrett, the CEO, mm. uh, what was the reason why Intel were in Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> and the answer was uh, essentially low-cost, uh, low-tax environment. Um, mm. But what keeps them here is, in fact, uh, the attractiveness of Dublin and Ireland uh, in terms of the getting the type of graduates they want to succeed. So all higher education in Ireland has responded to producing the types of graduates that industry wants. And we've been helped by Dublin being quite an attractive, and Ireland, by the way, because Dublin might have the Googles and the Microsofts, but mm. we've also got MedTech, we've got Pharma, And so pharma might be congregated more down in the south of Ireland and medtech is congregated more in the west of Ireland. Um, But we we have an environment that people also like to come and live in. Okay, Michael, I'm going to switch gears here now, talk about some of the uh, bumps in the road. Um, So so there's obviously some pain in this journey you've taken DIT on. yeah, the body has no memory for pain, does it, Neil? Even, <laughs> even though the brain can uh, can recall it. Uh, yeah. So, I, I maybe the the one example I would give um, is coming back to 
uh, one of the major initiatives that um, I undertook was to restructure the Faculty yeah. of Engineering. And uh, we went about it in an open and transparent way with a number of different uh, proposals for restructuring at each time, each each stage getting uh, and taking all feedback from, from all members of the faculty on board um, and eventually coming up with a final proposal uh, that we were ready to implement. And uh, I, I have to say, surprising me considerably was to find out that uh, having done all that, yeah. uh, if you like, uh, my peers uh, and the president were not particularly uh, happy with right. what we were proposing. And uh, essentially, um, uh, I have to say I was I was quite uh, surprised that uh, fellow deans felt that they knew more about my faculty uh, and uh, wanted to propose changes to our agreed internal structure, right. uh, as did uh, the president at the time, um, that some of the changes that we were proposing uh, perhaps were not in line with what his view of the faculty or the College of Engineering and Built Environment was. was. So I actually had to spend time and effort uh, trying to convince my peers and the president of what we had basically spent a year uh, in internal dialogue discussion uh, to to propose. Um, and then the actual implementation got delayed further when, uh, and again, I don't have a problem with this, but when uh, there were additional objections, but not to the, the structure that we were trying to imply, but because there were other initiatives that, uh, uh, for example, our, our union colleagues wanted to see implemented within DIT yeah. and uh, their ability to get those desired initiatives implemented, uh, one of their ways was to actually delay their approval of the change structure until um, th their initiatives were agreed. I mean that that's a, a, a standard political tool. Mm. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, the The union did not have a problem with our uh, with our uh, structure that we had answered every question that they had, but it delayed us probably again by about a year before we implemented. So you asked about those dark days um, yeah. when we when we began to implement the structure. The world's economy had collapsed in two thousand and ten. So within engineering, um, we were looking to implement the structure and at the same time deal with a collapse in public funding. Yeah. So um, it, was a, it was a time when um, anybody that asked to retire early, anybody that asked to leave, anybody that asked to transfer to a different place within DIT, we said yes to. Mm. Uh, we simply needed to... Uh, to reduce our cost base and our cost base was 75, 80% people. And so we lost, I think about 130 people uh, in about a two year window. So I have to say, I, I cannot speak highly enough about the, the program leaders and the, the lecturers who managed to still deliver all of our programs yeah. um, at, at that time. The other thing that happened, which made it really difficult, um, was that our part-time numbers collapsed. We we always had a very strong uh, part-time upskilling cohort of students, mm. and our apprentice numbers collapsed. But the number of full-time students grew. Right. So we actually the, the the profile of our student body changed, and our our program leaders had to respond to that as well. So there were many days where I would be in my office at 7.30 in the morning mm. and uh, I was leaving when the porters were locking the building down at half nine or something at night <laughs> and going home. Yeah. Um, the family was in bed. I'd eat the dinner in front of the, the TV, <laughs> go to yeah. bed, wake up and do it all again. Yeah. Um, so those were probably for me some of the darker days. But we got through it. Uh, the for the most part, for the most part, our restructuring was a success. 
And uh, I think the the faculty, the college rather, kicked on from there uh, and went on to, you know, continue to grow. So, Mike, you've spoken about some of the bumps in the road, but I was wondering if you could share some of the sort of key reflections um, of the benefits of the, of the changes brought in during that time, but also about the lessons you learn in terms of sort of understanding both engineering education, but also leading change. One of my clearest reflective kind of comments um, is that in a leadership position, you have to trust in people. Education fundamentally is a people business. Um, so anyone in a in a leadership position has to nurture uh, their staff, all of the staff. It's not just the academic high flyers, it's the admin staff, it's the it's the technical staff in the labs. Um, so every chance you get, you need to talk to staff. I tried to walk the corridors, I tried to get coffee with um different people. I talk to students. Um, you get a much better perspective on what's going on. But it all comes back to trusting your people. Um, and um, one of the things that I realized um, is that every time I got home, I wanted to be able to look at myself in the mirror and to not have any regrets with how I treated people. That even though I might have had a disagreement, even though a particular person might be trying to stymie an initiative, that I was still going to treat those people with respect because that was how I was going to live with myself. Uh, and that was going to be, if you like, that value that I tried to exhibit might be evident to others as well. I suppose one of the things I'd say is not just to listen to the people who report to you. Um, I found that there are people who will tell you what you want to hear. And sometimes, and I'm smiling as I say this, sometimes people will sow mischief just for the sake of sowing mischief. They'll tell you something to see how you're going to react to it. Um, you know, the old saying, you know, why are, why is politics so bad in the university? And it's because the stakes are so low. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, my reflection, get out of the office, talk to people, manage by walking around. Um, the other is to enjoy the journey. Um, I mean, you you have to be able to smile at what you're doing. You have to be able to enjoy it because you're selling. You're always selling the vision. You're selling the change you're trying to, to see in, the, in uh, the university ahead of you. And if you go down, if you're, if you're walking around in the dumps, grumpy, uh, not convinced that things are going well, people read that. Um, mm. So you've got to be optimistic. Uh, naturally optimistic is better. Um, but there are challenges. And uh, so often, so often, people want to talk to you about the challenges they face. They don't necessarily believe that you can solve that challenge for them, but they want to be listened to. So listening to people, trusting in people, uh, respecting people, uh, fundamental key learnings and reflections for me. So, Mike, you spoke about some of the things that sort of helped and supported you internally in terms of that change. I'm just wondering if there was any sort of communities externally which which helped with this um, process. Yes. One of the things that I've tried to say a couple of times today is uh, this, uh, for me, always important uh, point of trying to, to stay connected with external partners and universities to understand what they're doing to be able to take learnings in but also i haven't used this word but to kind of benchmark what we were doing the good and the not so good um, and cefi um, uh, played a key role in that um, having a community that i could engage with that i could bounce ideas off that i could simply just listen to what fellow fellow deans were doing um, really was quite important. Uh, it, it, it provides an outlet um, at one level, but it also provides a kind of a, an empathetic sounding board uh, for what you're trying to do as well. Uh, and it's simply also a way to get out of the office 
get some perspective on what you're trying to do. So, Neil, you talked about at the very opening, you know, this is a, a time of change within higher education with restructurings and, and mergers all over Europe and the world. So there, there, there are lots of people that are going through the types of, of uh, evolutions that DIT, that I faced, that DIT faced, et cetera. So having the opportunity to engage with people like that is, is really helpful. And then, as I said, as I tried to ensure that CEFI was, if you like, uh, an entry point for more and more of our academic staff to have a window on the wider world and what European universities were doing, CEFI became important that way as well. So I, I really do think for its faults and perhaps it's, uh, you know, it could be perhaps stronger in some areas, but CEFI is a wonderful opportunity that each of us needs to take advantage of and derive the benefits that we want out of an organization like mm -hmm. CEFI. And uh, I, I think just as a, a collaborating opportunity for people, it's brilliant. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on this uh, special episode um, of our podcast um, to coincide with the CEFI 2023 conference in TU Dublin. Um, so for our listeners who are interested in driving change and transformation within their own context, be them deans, lecturers or researchers, what final piece of advice can you offer? Neil, before commencing any initiative, and that could be an initiative at the dean level, at, say, a program chair level, yeah. it could be even an initiative that, uh, you know, a, a head of department or head of school ha has tasked you with. Uh, before commencing that initiative, you have to have a clear idea of what you want to achieve. And you also have to have the ability to know when that has actually been achieved. In other words, when are you finished? Um, mm. Uh, so th that that is first and foremost, um, clear idea of what you want to achieve, uh, knowing when it's going to be done, and then trying to determine whether the you have the wherewithal within the resources, you know, the team that you have, if it's yourself, whether you can you can affect that change yourself, or yeah. whether in fact there are there are resources that you're going to need to bring in. I would say for larger initiatives, don't be afraid to bring in external support. Mm. Now, you have to be careful about that. Um, external support can give you the types of, for example, uh, expertise associated with, we talked about Cotter, the A-Change model. So yeah. processes associated with change can very often be brought in from the outside. But mm. in an academic environment, you need to be very careful because Academics know better than anybody else, right? <laughs> uh, so um, sometimes external support for you may not be accepted in, mm. in the type of change initiative that you might be trying to um, uh, to engage. Um, then you've got to work really hard on internal support for the change initiative. When I reorganized the joint faculty of engineering and built environment, uh, I had most of the heads of school with me on the journey, but not all. Mm. Um, but I also had failed to do some of that other stakeholdering with my peers, fellow deans, and the president in terms of where we were on that journey. So that surprised me uh, later on when we came to implement. Um, there is an old saying as well that organizing a university or faculty or a school is like organizing a cemetery. You cannot expect any help from the occupants. Um, <laughs> but I would say that's not true. Uh, mm. In initiative after initiative, I would say the rule of thirds apply. If, mm. if you have a clear vision for what you're trying to achieve and you can describe it and explain it, you're going to have approximately a third of the people with you to begin with. Approximately a third of the people will never be with you. Don't no. waste your time with them. Um, right. And a third of the people essentially still remain to be convinced. And those are the third of the people that you work on. 
Yeah. Um, so I I have to say that if you're open and transparent with people, you explain things, you listen, then generally speaking, people will give you a fair hearing. Um, so that's that's kind of my final words would be, um, have a vision for what you want to achieve, sell the vision up, down, and across the university and keep selling it. And then in terms of how you engage with people, to trust, respect, and listen to them, and to be brave. Go for it. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Neil, Natalie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So Natalie, that was a bit of a departure from our normal episode, sort of interviewing a past president of Cefi and Dean. So we framed it as a story of transformation. But really, I think it was just as much about listening to someone with great leadership and people skills. And mm. Mike's work at TUD, you know, developing this research capability by bringing in Fulbright scholars like Shannon Chance, you know, has had and is still having a real impact in the field. So what were your takeaways? So yeah, I really agree with you, Neil. It was a really interesting conversation. And a few sort of things stood out for me, really. Mm. I think um, Mike's focus on external sort of networks and collaborators was, you know, really reminded me of the the benefits of that. And I guess as well, I was especially interested by him sort of commenting on how that changed as he developed through his career, like as a sort of early career Um, academic myself I know I really value these external communities but I never really thought Mm. about what they bring to people who are at that sort of dean level as well you know who go through the the, maybe the bigger challenges and changes in in the landscape and have to deal with that and how that community can support in that kind of work yeah um I think the other sort of thing that I've taken away is just um, the value of, of talking to people, listening, you know, <laughs> yeah. those trust trust elements that, that Mike spoke about and being, mm. you know, genuine and true to yourself. I think that's, um, you know, in terms of leadership, that's a good piece of advice. Um, so I think they're my, my main takeaways, really. I mentioned at the start of the episode that I knew I needed to be a bit more strategic and I certainly think that Mike alluded to some of the ways he was quite strategic. So, you know, focusing on sort of government policy and, and what was going on externally in terms of accreditation in terms of engineers island in terms of sort of the knowledge sector um so yeah i think thinking about some of those things and how they align and just you know having some patience and just waiting for <laughs> waiting for things to happen as well what about you yeah i mean similar to what you said you know a lot of the episode was i think about people and mm. Know, and valuing people now Mike was the president of Cefi when I joined its board and you know I always felt sort of very fortunate to have worked with him during mm. that time you know sort of his skills in sort of bringing people on board making them feel valued pushing things on yeah. uh, making strategic changes at Cefi you know I've witnessed this firsthand um, he's a very inspiring person to work with and I hope listeners got some measure of that mm. So if it's the first time you've listened to the Safi podcast, remember to subscribe. It can help other people to, to find the podcast. Also remember that you can access on YouTube um, and the show notes, which are on the Safi website.